From the Annie E. Casey Foundation, I'm Lisa Hamilton, and this is CaseyCast. Joining us today is Arthur Brooks, who has been described as a professional musician turned intrepid economist. And it's true. Arthur began his career playing the French horn professionally, and he spent 10 years serving as president of the American Enterprise Institute, a D.C.-based think tank that researches government, politics, economics, and social welfare. Today, he's juggling two new and equally impressive roles, professor of the practice of public leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School and Arthur C. Patterson faculty fellow at Harvard Business School. And what I have to imagine is very little spare time. Arthur continues to research the intersections of culture, public policy, and economics. He's also a columnist for The Washington Post and a best-selling author with 11 books, including his most recent release, Love Your Enemies, which explores how we can bridge national divides and political divides to build a better country. Welcome to CaseyCast, Arthur. Thank you, Lisa. What a joy to be with you. Well, I want to start by talking about the American Enterprise Institute. You've spoken fondly about your time as the head of the organization. Um, The American Enterprise Institute, or AEI, is one of Casey's longstanding grantees. And I'd like for you to talk about AEI's work as it relates to children and families. Well, AEI is a think tank that's been around for a long time, over 80 years. It was started in 1938 in the, sort of the teeth of the Great Depression, uh, where members of the business community got together and said, you know, how could we start an academic organization that would do research on how to, how to pull the country out of the Great Depression with a, a particular emphasis on people at the margins? They had a very radical idea, which is that, that people at the periphery of society are the ones who can actually save a society. It's so crazy and, and, and strange and unconventional to think that way. We always think that it's the rich people, the lucky people, the highly educated people, the people that have all the, all the good fortune that will save a society, that will save the others. But, but that's actually not often how it works. Often it is the people, the, the greatest resource in the society, the people that we consider to be the victims or the marginalized. And that was the basis on which AEI was founded um, 81 years ago. And, and it's it's thrived ever since then. In the 10 years that I was president of AEI, we grew tremendously. Um, we don't take any government money. We don't take any contracts at all. We simply work with partners who share our values, like the NE Casey Foundation, people that, that really believe that a better world is possible. But to get a better world, you got to look to the people who are the true assets that you need to engage the most, which almost inevitably are the places that you've traditionally neglected to look, hmm. the people who are living in poverty, the people who are living in under marginalized circumstances, children, uh, the, the elderly. These are the great resources that we tend to overlook. And the NEKC Foundation is famous for understanding this ideology. And so it was a natural partnership with AEI to do work on early childhood development, to do work on how we can have stronger families and as such, how the people that we thought, how many people in mistakenly think are liabilities to manage are actually the assets to develop that can help us all. Mm, that's a, a wonderful perspective and obviously uh, a perspective we share. Can you give more insight into the kinds of solutions uh, to barriers that, that the researchers at AEI have been thinking about? The idea that we talk about an awful lot at AEI is that there's a radical equality of human dignity and there's a limitlessness of human potential. So the, the work that we worked on with the NEA Casey Foundation that we work on in general, particularly in the, in, in the worlds of, of social welfare, 
are very opportunity based. Uh, so when we talk about early childhood development, we don't talk about just, you know, what can we do so that, you know, poor kids are not going to be a burden on society. We talk about how can poor children from poor families, how can they, they can realize their limitless potential, mm -hmm. just like we want all our kids to, to, to realize their limitless potential. And so that's a lot of the work that we're, that we're looking at. How can we change standardized testing? How can we do interventions in, in families uh, where, where women are pregnant and they're in marginalized economic circumstances? How can we change school policies so that the bottom 25% of the income distribution doesn't systematically receive a worse education than the rest of us and our kids? Those kinds of questions, but, for, but again, for this funny philosophical twist, which is not, you know, they need us, but rather because we need them. You know, when I first met you, you were talking about a concept that I found fascinating, human flourishing. Mm. Would you talk about what human flourishing is? Sure. You know, human flourishing is a, is a term that's a little bit broader than happiness. I mean, you can get almost anybody's attention by talking about happiness because that's kind of in the vernacular. It's what everybody wants, or at least what everybody wants more of. Um, but it's not very precise. You know, what is it? Is some philosophical idea, a psychological construct, a feeling? Um, so human flourishing is where people can live the best lives full of progress and promise and potential. And, and so human flourishing is a program, a set of programs that we started to institute some years ago at AEI, where we were quite serious about looking at all areas of life way beyond just the traditional, you know, what's the economic growth rate? What's the income per capita? Is there enough economic equality? Is there enough economic mobility? Those traditional things that people look at, we look at quality of life indicators that really matter. Is it easier? Is it better uh, for people to be able to raise families? Are people seeing their kids thriving in all the ways that we as parents, you and I as parents, we certainly know when our kids are thriving or and when they're not. And looking at a lot of these measures, many of them are in fact happiness related, but the human flourishing projects that we've run are trying to look holistically at people's best lives. And then saying basically, we have no ideology when it comes to this. You know, we're, we're not, you know, hidebound to, you know, just do traditional policy interventions that follow a particular political point of view. Mm -hmm. On the contrary, one of the things that we found that's really interesting to us, Lisa, is that there's been way too much emphasis on government policy. Mm -hmm. I didn't think this. I mean, I've always thought, you know, better life comes through policy design. I have a PhD in public policy analysis. But in doing this work on human flourishing, I found that we've spent way too much of our social emphasis and money and time on tech, hmm. trying to get that to improve our lives and, and on, on, on government policy. It's almost as if you know, the, the, these two tools, tech and policy, they should be at the back of the bus, serving our values and our morals, serving our love. They're in the front of the bus, driving the bus. <laughs> There's a driver now. <laughs> and that's a big problem, mm. you know, because we're basically, you know, we're gobbling up tons and tons of money on public policy. We're spending a lot of money and resources and some people getting very, very rich on whatever app or device we think will actually improve our lives. And you look at the data and people are getting less happy. There's more despair. There's more drug abuse. There's more suicide. There's more loneliness. There's more depression and anxiety, especially among young people. And so... I think we're going in the wrong direction. So our work with the NE Casey Foundation 
And all of my work personally as a scholar is dedicated to turn that around. Hmm. And I even love the way you've talked about reframing the kind of data that we look at. As you know, the Casey Foundation does an annual report, um, the Kids Count Report, and we're using national statistical databases that enable us to give the country a view of how young people are doing. But so often those data are framed negatively. And I really appreciate the approach that you've taken to say, you know, flourishing is not just the absence of negative things. It's also the presence of positive things. And those two things are not always um, opposite sides of the same coin. So I, I thank you for lifting up what flourishing means, because it isn't just the absence of the negative things that we want to have happen in, in people's for lives. For sure. I've always loved the, the Casey Foundation's approach to this. And, and, and these things have changed my thinking. I mean, as an economist, it's funny, we get a lot of things sort of upside down and backwards in our thinking. So for example, when you're talking about communities that are flourishing, that are communities that are happy and economically making progress and they're they're environmentally sustainable and all, there's a very big tendency among economists to say, well, what I want to see is is a falling birth rate among women. But then when you talk to women, single women, married women, you know, young women, middle-aged women, they talk about how children are such an important source of meaning. And the more optimistic they are, the more kids they have. (laughs) It's a crazy thing. And so when we talk about our goal being women having fewer kids, this is the wrong thing to be looking at because Hmm. we're not actually asking people about the source of optimism and hope in their lives. Children, and and again, boy, this, this really rocked my world. I'm always trying to learn and to be better not just as a scholar, but somebody who's trying to do work in, in the policy world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it made me remember a truth that people had told me before, which is that the, 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 the measure that the ultimate resource of any society is people. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's, you know, societies are based on people. They're not based on GDP numbers and, <laughs> right. and resources that, you know, fossil fuel levels and, mm-hmm. you know, parts per billion of some contaminant. That's, that's just, that's desiccated, that's statistics. People are the ultimate resource. They're the promise. They're the difference between having a future and not having a future. Mm-hmm. And so I'm telling you, you know, when I'm talking to parents and families, they're so joyful about the fact that they can and want to and are going to have more kids. And I said, <laughs> I just got to reassess this. <laughs> that is that is great. I, I think just an, such an important lesson for all of us as we think about what are we measuring and why. Um, but it seems like you've lifted up this fundamental question of opportunity that people aren't just looking for how to eradicate the barriers in their lives. They're looking for how to connect to greater opportunity. And I understand you made a documentary about how low-income people are connecting to opportunity Tell us about that project and and what you learned about helping people on the margins succeed. Yeah, it's running on Netflix right now called The Pursuit. It was made by a filmmaker in Austin, Texas named John Popola. And and he he was commissioned by an investor in AEI that wanted us to make a movie together um, about how people at the margins pull themselves up. Um, not how we ch- help them with charity, but how they pull themselves up to have a better life, and as such, how they can help us understand the secret to our own happiness. Hmm. It's like wow, what a concept! And hmm. so, 
to get at the at the, the bottom of that, the filmmaker followed me around the world for three years, and I'm on the road a lot. I'm for on the road. Three years. Yeah, three years, <laughs> and so he he followed me through. You know, I was doing some research in a slum in Mumbai, in India, mm. um, talking to entrepreneurs in a in a in an Indian slum. And we were in a little coal mining town in Kentucky in a homeless shelter in New York and Marxist street demonstrations in Spain and, you know, talking to people living their ordinary lives in Denmark, just all over the world. And, and, and we found some very interesting things, you know, the places where you'd think you'd find the most depressing circumstances, like a slum in India. On the contrary, it's, it's phenomenal. I mean, mm. we, we've, people that were on the make, their lives were getting better. You know, it's a slum that, I had first seen when I was a teenager. I've been I've traveled to India a lot um, for personal interest and research over the over the decades, and over the past thirty five years. And and I noticed that that I found more optimistic people that felt they had a better future than I found in Barcelona. Mm. Um, you know, people in Barcelona was like, yeah, I, I'm not working anymore. My kid who's twenty five has never had a job, and they're you know they're they're protesting that the government is not giving them the levels of, of, you know, income support mm-hmm. that they think they deserve. And, you know, I understand why they'd be upset because everybody's just trying to pay the bills. But then I go to India and you know, there's not any begging. There was not any crime that I was aware of mm-hmm. that, you know, the, there's a public school system where people are sending their kids to school. There's a public health system mm-hmm. that's, that's growing and they're poor by our standards, mm-hmm. but their lives are so much better than people would understand. It has everything to do with opportunity. It's everything mm-hmm. to do with trajectory. It has everything to do with, the idea that something can be done and I have agency mm. to do it. It makes me wonder if um, at a basic level, um, is there anything that we generally consider essential to success, but we're really getting it all wrong? Yeah, um, <laughs> that's generally, you know, that's a, that's a, Lisa, that's a big metaphysical topic. <laughs> What's the <laughs> meaning of life, Arthur? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, it's a good thing we've got, you know, the whole 45 minutes to sort this out, you right. know. <laughs> Um, I'm actually writing about that right now, um, that how we have a tendency to 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 think that what's going to make us happy and successful doesn't. Hmm. Um, and part of the reason for that is that there's a, a discrepancy in what our instincts tell us. There's There are two big areas of psychology that are sort of at odds. There's a an area of psychology called evolutionary psychology, which says that you know how, how people behave has very much to do with the propagation of the species, the imperatives of passing on our genes effectively. As you can always find in all these oddities of human behavior, you say, ah, the reason that exists is because in caveman time, you <laughs> know, that were, kind of They stuff, did right? it to survive. <laughs> yeah, kind of, right? Mm-hmm. And, and what you find is that to, to pass on your genes, that the, the concept of success that you have in your instincts is to pursue worldly rewards like fame and power and pleasure and wealth. You know, that's what's going to make it possible for you to survive and, and, and to propagate the species. Now, there's a new area of psychology called positive psychology, which basically doesn't, it doesn't ask, how are you more likely 500,000 years ago to get a mate? <laughs> it asks, what should you do to be happier today? And it turns out that money, power, pleasure, and fame are the wrong goals. Mother nature doesn't care if you're happy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so the result of it is you need a different agenda and the success agenda of happiness as opposed to genetics the success agenda of happiness is fourfold and it's basically faith family friends and satisfying work hmm. and so if you want to be a happy person and not just somebody who's likely to get a mate um which it doesn't seem like is the ultimate goal of everybody mm-hmm. 
to live a happy, fulfilling life with a happy, fulfilled family and, a, and to have a better and better community, you should be thinking about your transcendental spiritual life. You should be thinking about uh, a healthy family life. All this good Annie Casey Foundation <laughs> stuff about having communities where mm-hmm. people have strong bonds and friendship right. and a good economy, not just so we have economic growth, but where people can be fully engaged in jobs where they can serve each other and mm-hmm. they can earn their success. And this, so this is for me, this is an agenda for the free enterprise system, which is you know the greatest system in human history for pulling people out of poverty. But we have to remember it also has to be designed for these other goals mm-hmm. of, of human fulfillment and true human flourishing. That we need to be serious about strong families where people can have children mm-hmm. and sometimes even a lot of children. Mm-hmm. That's good. Where people have the freedom to practice their faith and to develop themselves transcendentally and where communities are strong and friendships are stronger. Boy, this has changed. It's really changed my thinking, Lisa. Well, you know, I was at the conference not long ago, and there was a professor from Yale there who taught the most popular class at Yale. It was called the Psychology of Happiness. And uh, it looks like uh, not just you as a researcher, but lots of uh, young people and all of us in our lives are trying to figure out what the ingredients are. So um, please continue with that research. I think it's going to be uh, pretty important for us to to understand what what gives us meaning. And, And to your point, it is isn't just economic stability, which is certainly critical, but those other kinds of connections that um, enable us to feel like we're a, a part of community. I think that's uh, so very important. Um, you said something earlier when you were talking about your uh, documentary about agency and about the role that um, people feel they can have in creating more positive lives for themselves and for those around them. And so I want to shift to this question around um, problem solving. We know that there are lots of challenges to, um, you know, in our work, thinking about how children and families achieve their greatest potential. Um, But you've written and thought a lot about the things we can do through policy and through civil society to improve the conditions of people. And so I want to explore both of those with you. I think to, to start this notion of what people can do for themselves or what people do as social entrepreneurs to help others in their community. I read you even wrote a book about social entrepreneurship. I'd like to hear you talk about the role that community and faith-based organizations play in helping children and families thrive and and, um, what you think the potential is for this social entrepreneurship movement. There's a lot of potential um, as long as it's unconventional in its thinking. Hmm. I mean, there's a tendency to kind of to, to see the, the problems in society is just so hopeless, hopelessly complex that mm-hmm. we try to chew off one little corner of it and to say, okay, well, the solution is microfinance, for example. And I, I'm all, I love microfinance, mm-hmm. you know, micro lending to, to people. But, you know, that sort of contenting ourselves with that is, is a really big mistake. And the reason for that is that it doesn't take on what people really need and want in their lives. One of the biggest mistakes that we make when we talk about people who are really disadvantaged is we talk about them and we don't talk about us. Mm-hmm. If you really want to understand what poor people need, look in the mirror and ask, what do I need? Mm. <laughs> That's so, so look, important for us to realize we're actually not different <laughs> that we are. Yeah, no. I mean, we're, we're, we're all the same. We want the same stuff. We have right. different economic circumstances, mm-hmm. but the truth is that, look, if faith, family, friends, and work are important for meaning in my life, they're 
also the most important things in the lives of poor people. Mm -hmm. And so social entrepreneurs should be thinking about those areas, should be thinking, you know, what can I do such that people in, in poor communities have greater access to to tools of spiritual development. So faith-based mm -hmm. communities should be thinking a lot about, you know, what can we do to build houses of worship and mm -hmm. strong communities? It, you know, th this is such an enormous source of, of success and productivity in people's lives, but also more importantly, satisfaction in people's lives. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you see in, in, in communities that are really marginalized is as much as people who are not poor think, oh, poor people, you know, they all go to church all the time. Well, that's not right. I mean, <laughs> mm -hmm. It's actually not correct. Mm -hmm. And you know, part of it is that there aren't uh, enough houses of worship. Sometimes there's not adequate leadership. There's not adequate mentorship. Mm -hmm. So basically, you know, what can they do for, uh, you know, greater sharing of these values and, and, and creating more spiritual opportunities? So we need spiritual entrepreneurs hmm. in these communities. How are we thinking about, and, and this is something that the Casey Foundation has been a leader in, is healthy families, not just because people will be less likely to be, you know, not having calorie deficiency or something or, or do better in school, but because we, we think that poor people should be happy. <laughs> and and family life is literally the most enduring and dependable source of happiness and among these and, and the data don't lie on this successful marriages bring the most enduring source of happiness to most people so what are we doing so that you know people can can be in love i mean it's amazing mm -hmm. you talk about this and you sound like you're really sentimental but i'm, I'm a hard-edged social scientist <laughs> right, here right. and you know a big part of my agenda these days is is doing the social science of of love including romantic love Love is fundamental. That's at the very top of every single person's list. And so you get the idea of this agenda of thinking bigger. We need mm -hmm. spiritual entrepreneurs and love entrepreneurs and friendship entrepreneurs and I mean, and work entrepreneurs that are not just thinking about a universal basic income or whatever crazy utopian thing that's coming up these days. Remember, None of us wants welfare. We all want work. Mm -hmm. So why are poor people any different? You know, what I like about this this uh, perspective is that, you know, in the same way you helped us think about the way that you frame your data um, helps you understand what the problem is or what it, what your ambition should be. And in the same way you're saying, let's think about solutions in a broader way. If we understand the challenge or the opportunity differently, how can we use these tools we have at our disposal, like um, social entrepreneurship, to help us achieve not just, you know, removal of barriers, but again, to achieve these better states of well-being that we hope families have. So you you are thinking in a very different way than I think lots of folks imagine these tools um, could be used. So I, I think that's a really important, provocative notion. You know, it's not just a policy mistake that we make. We make this mistake in our own personal lives, too. We have a tendency to think, my life will be better if I take away barriers, Right. I mean, we all think that. I mean, I can't tell you how many people, you know, you and I for a long time lived in, in the Washington, D.C. area or in Baltimore. And I lived in D.C. for a long time. And how many people say, you know, I just I hate my commute. You know, this is a common thing. A lot of people <laughs> listening to us are like, ah, oh, my kid. Fortunately, they have the, the NEKC podcast. Uh, <laughs> commute, But, <clears throat> you know, if they could cut their commute, they'll be like, I'll be way happier. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, actually, that's wrong. Taking away barriers will lower your unhappiness, mm -hmm. but it won't raise your happiness. Mm -hmm. You got to be in the business of not just taking away barriers mm -hmm. for young people, for poor people, for people at the margins, but also for everybody listening to us. Take away barriers, sure, but if you think that that's going to give you the best life, you're you're crazy. You got to think about 
the things that will bring you happiness, Mm -hmm. not just the things that will cut your unhappiness. Hmm. Let's shift to the policy conversation. And I want to talk about the role of policy in changing people's lives. You have spoken on and I think been a great leader on bridging divides that exist in the policymaking process. Many people don't believe that there is the opportunity for middle ground anymore. One of the most significant recent projects that Casey funded with AEI was with Brookings on a project called Opportunity, Responsibility and Security, which was really trying to figure out what's the common ground that we have on these issues. I had Ron Haskins on the podcast several months ago, and he talked about the report itself. But it's worth having you um, share from AEI why you thought that was an important project to do and what you think about this possibility of of consensus building? You know, one of the the great myths, I think, in American politics today is that we're really, really, most of us are really super far apart. Yeah, that we just don't agree on anything. Yeah, yeah. And that, you know, that the truth is that this is a country built on the competition of ideas. And the competition of ideas is fundamental to a free society. I love competition in economics because it leads to prosperity and, and you know better outcomes and in politics it's called democracy <laughs> and I love it in sports because sports is great are great but people are not so sure about the competition of ideas mm. where you know we where, where constructive disagreement actually leads to more excellent outcomes but that's a, that's a, a, a fact of progress in American society. The problem is that we have a tendency to misunderstand, and and we're in a cycle right now where we believe that because of a lot of disagreement on some fundamental issues, that there's no agreement on anything, and there's no middle ground. Most Americans agree on most things, but we have a couple of big problems in this country. Number one is that we're too Mm. Washington-centric. You know, Washington politics has become a form of national entertainment. Mm And so it's extraordinary, you know, I'll go to wherever, you know, Portland, Oregon, or Sacramento, California, or something. And, you know, people will be, you know, complaining about what's going on in Washington, because either they hate the Republicans and like the Democrats, or hate the Democrats and like the Republicans, or whatever. And, and they'll say, you know, nothing gets done, and the other party's evil, and all that. And they'll say, you know, who just won the school superintendent election here? They'll be like, I don't know. Well, that matters. <laughs> it does. I mean, they're like stuck watching a reality show. I can't believe it. I mean, I know it's important, the whole, you know, all whatever the controversy du jour is in Washington, D.C. There's plenty of them, and they're pretty disturbing. But, but don't take them for entertainment, and don't let them distract you from all the things that are going on in your community. Most communities in the United States today, there's a lot of progress going on. I know a ton of governors, Democrats and Republicans, who are, who are steadfastly bipartisan because they want mm-hmm. to make progress. Right. I mean, this is in in many communities, this is the best of times for policy that's helping people and Democrats and Republicans working together. You just never know it Mm -hmm. by, you know, watching the Democratic field battling it out and listening to, you know, Donald Trump and the, the, you know, the Senate and the House. And so one of the things that I tell people is I I recommend they go on a a, a national politics fast (laughs) or a cleanse, Uh right? Go two weeks and don't pay attention to DC at all. Mm -hmm. And you'll be happier. And if you're paying attention to other stuff, you'll actually know more. And be encouraged. And be encouraged to your point about the kinds of problem solving that's happening at the state and local level. It it is fertile ground. Yeah, you'll know more about Mm -hmm. America, actually, Mm -hmm. at the end of it, 
um, because you know you're being distracted from a lot of what's going on in the real country by the five percent fringes that are in the business of keeping us outraged and fired up. Right, right. So it, it sounds like you um, you do believe there's lots that we agree on and found it important for AEI to partner with another national think tank, Brookings, to help the country see places of agreement and the and the path forward that we might be able to work on together. For sure. And not to mention the fact that you have to be around people who have a different perspective because they're mm-hmm. they're the only ones who can test your perspective and, and and improve you. That's why competition is so incredible. I mean, it's like, you know, if there there were only one baseball team, the Baltimore Orioles, I realize that you probably think there is only one baseball team. <laughs> There's Orioles, another? But, I know. But, you know, their reason they're good is because they play other teams. Uh-huh. And so, and, and they play other teams in the context of mutual respect and following the rules. You know, one of the thing, one of the reasons that at AEI, I mean, we have a lot of free enterprise solutions and market-based solutions, but we we recognize that there are times where markets fail, and mm. there's all kinds of role, constructive role for government, and and we want to be around our friends who are more interested in and and are thinking more about the government solutions, mm-hmm. and that's exactly these types of collaborations are with our friends at Brookings, um, and and not to mention the fact that the key objectives are exactly the same. We want a better country that serves people more, where America is a better gift to the world, and where human dignity is paramount. Um, there's nobody at Brookings that would say they don't believe in that. There's nobody at mm-hmm. AEI either. That's that's absolutely right. Well, part of the way to get there is in the title of your latest book called Love Your Enemies. And uh, I imagine this title grows out of your own faith as well. But it, it tackles um, this question of political discourse and um, what we do when we don't agree but should learn how to disagree better. Um, tell listeners about your book, Love Your Enemies, and what advice you have about how we can disagree better to make society better. You know, it's uh, it's funny. I was looking over the past few years at kind of this bitter political polarization, freight train coming down the tracks, at least in Washington, if not in communities. And I just shake my head because it follows a, a literature that I've followed for years in, in uh, successful marriages. The main predictor of divorce is not that couples hate each other. It's they treated each other as if they hated each other. Hmm. It's this weird thing. There's a guy named John Gottman who teaches at the University of Washington in Seattle, and he's brought thousands of couples back together that are on their way to divorce. And he found that the problem is that not that they get angry with each other. The problem is that they treat each other with contempt as if the other side were worthless. Hmm. They still love each other, but they treat each other as if the other side were worthless, which is almost physically harmful. Hmm. Now, looking at this literature, it was really interesting to me, and this is what uh, stimulated the book, Love Your Enemies, is that we have a tendency to treat each other that way politically in the United States today. You know, our fellow Americans, we treat people who disagree with us on on just policy issues as if they were stupid and evil and worthless. And the result is that we have all this animosity and bitterness. Mm -hmm. And then I ask, you know, what's the solution? You know, so when you write a book called Love Your Enemies, um, it's one thing to say, hey, love your enemies. It's something else to say, how, right, you know? Because it's a hard thing to do, but but that again that gets back to the the marriage literature. Um, people have been asking forever, you know, how couples that are on the rocks can get back together, and, and we need to talk about how our you know our fellow citizens, how we can get back together, notwithstanding our differences. And and it's actually you know there are a, a bunch of techniques for doing it, which I lay out in the book. It's this is basically a ten percent define the problem book and a ninety percent solutions book. Hmm. So I talk about how 
you know, how you can, you know, love people with whom you disagree. And, and part of it is pure psychological, um, you know, hacking. You know, you basically, I asked uh, one time, I do a lot of work with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. We've had a longstanding collaboration. And I asked him one time, what should I do when I feel contempt for somebody else? You know, I want to roll my eyes. Or <laughs> they say something that I think is really stupid. And he said, you should show warm heartedness. Hmm. And I said, what if I don't feel warm-heartedness? <laughs> he said, then you should fake it. <laughs> it's like, in other words, somebody treats you with hatred, you answer with love, even if you don't feel love. Why? Because, you know, we are, we are either, what are, are we, are we the masters of our feelings or the slaves to our feelings? Hmm. We choose, basically. And a lot of people walk around feeling like they're slaves to their emotions. And that's a big mistake. You know, leaders don't do that when they're leading an organization. They'll fail miserably unless they can master their feelings and, right. and, and even fake it when they need to. When things are rough at home, they don't come in and beat everybody up at the office. And, and so we need to do that in our ordinary dealings as well. And we will, here's the interesting part, we will conform to the person that we want to be. Mm. So if you want to be more virtuous, act like a virtuous person would. So that's one of the things that I talk about. I go into a lot more detail about that as well. I also talk about how we can can organize our, our communities, organize our families, organize our societies in a way where we're reaching out more to the people that we ordinarily wouldn't, getting mm. more diversity in our lives. Mm. I mean, yeah ideas and ideological diversity. I mean, that's such sweet stuff, but it takes some courage. And, right. and I talk about how we can do that as well. And then finally, I, I have got a lot of, I have a lot of advice in, there for public policymakers. Mm. Well, you know, you're back on a college campus these days, and I'm curious if you think there is something we could be doing when young people are in college to teach them how to respect other ideologies earlier or how to debate issues that don't um, vilify the other person. What do you think we might do in college campuses that might change yeah. this? Yeah, it's a good question. College campuses, are many are in real crisis. And part of it is because they've been hearing for a long time on college campuses, 10 or 15 years now, a kind of a strange ideology that at least that you and I didn't learn when we were that age. I mean, we talked about tolerance of opposing viewpoints and holding your own viewpoints, but listening to others, mm -hmm. uh, which is a fundamental skill in getting along in society. There's been more of a, a sense that everything is based on structures of power and oppression and privilege. As such, people who hold a, a power they will always exercise privilege and oppression until you take their power away. And given the fact that voice is power, you have license when you disagree with something to shut down another person's point of view. Mm. And that's the reason we see a lot of deplatforming on campuses. It's based fundamentally on a worldview that most of the people listening to this podcast, and certainly you and I, we just don't share that worldview. Mm. And so we have to take that on. Mm. Those of us who may have a strong point of view on politics, but we're, we're pretty much free speech absolutists. I mean, everything up to yelling fire in a crowded theater. <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, we think people that, that, that if, if you disagree with speech and you find speech repellent, the answer is more speech. <laughs> not no speech. Not, not less speech. <laughs> not, not, uh -huh. A free society where other people can be lifted up must never uh, shut down the voices of others, even those with whom we strongly disagree. Hmm. Well, I want to end by talking about something I mentioned in the intro that you have had quite a journey from a professional horn player to a researcher and leader of a national organization. And it made me think about the intersection between your personal journey and this question we've been talking about, about happiness. And it made me wonder if there was something about your ability to 
retool yourself that contributed to your happiness. I, like you, am somebody who's retooled themselves in life. I started off as a tax lawyer and, you know, now I run a, a national philanthropy. Um, could you talk about how your journey might be instructive on this question about happiness? How might we apply um, the ideas of happiness, not just to personal happiness, but to career success, which is which is obviously linked to that? Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you for that, Lisa. And you've obviously found the secret to it, too. And the, what I would say is, you know, I, I, I'm very interested in entrepreneurship. But along the way, when I was writing about entrepreneurship and the phenomenon of entrepreneurship, I realized that business entrepreneurship is just kind of a narrow case of the social phenomenon of entrepreneurship. I also realized that we had a tendency to marginalize people. We, we had to lift up business entrepreneurs as heroes, but look at people who were reinventing themselves um, in a different way. But the ultimate entrepreneurship is seeing your life as a startup. Hmm. You know, you have a lot of resources under your disposal. You have an idea of how to create explosive growth and value, no matter how you denominate it. I don't recommend denominating it in dollars, as a matter of fact. You know, no matter how you denominate, you know, the lives you're going to change and the people you're going to help and the dignity that you're going to create. And, you know, th this is really important for us to see our lives as, a, as, a, as an enterprise. You get one life, you get one set of resources, and you can use it for explosive rewards. Um, but you have to set about your life in a very entrepreneurial way. And you know that realization um, opened a lot of doors for me because it made me think, you know, what are the adventures that I want to have that will that will actually create value in the lives of other people and will lift other people up that will bring them together. And at different times, it meant different things. You know, I was a French horn player in a symphony orchestra for a long time for 12 years. And, you know, then I went and I went to college by distance learning, graduated when I was 30, which is a, a pretty alternative path. And right. then went and did my PhD and, and then became a college professor for a long time and then ran a think tank. And now I'm back um, teaching and, and, and writing and I get to write books and do, I'm working on a television show. It's phenomenal. <laughs> but it all comes down to the entrepreneurial vision of what my life is supposed to be all about in the service of others. Hmm. And uh, that's the ultimate adventure for me. Thank you for the inspiration you provide in your own journey, uh, but for the amazing work that you've led at AEI and, when, and will continue to lead at Harvard. Um, thank you for always just being a great, thoughtful partner and for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you for this wonderful show. Thank you for lifting up other people. And thanks to the NAE Casey Foundation for doing the work that treats everybody with the dignity that, that they deserve and helps us all see that it's at the margins where we can actually find our own secret to happiness. Thank you. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us as well. If you've liked today's conversation, please read our show on Apple Podcasts to help others find us. You can ask questions and leave us feedback on Twitter by using the CaseyCast hashtag. To learn more about Casey and the work of our guests, you can find our show notes at aecf.org forward slash podcast. Until next time, I wish all of America's kids and all of you a bright future.